I love the flexibility of our church. From week to week, uh, there's always something exciting going on. And uh, it can be anywhere from our scheduling all the way to the wind tunnel that happened this morning when we started. And I especially enjoy watching the, uh, the various individuals doing everything they can to quietly uh, make the uh, blinds quit making noise you know, so that no one can see them. And everybody in the room, actually, their head is turned and noticing the, the way things are flying. Um, this morning, we're going to continue to look at the book of Malachi. We looked at Malachi a couple of weeks ago. We're going to look at him again today and then again next week. This particular prophet uh, is the last prophet that we see in the Old Testament. Um, presents a message that's um, pretty challenging for us. Uh, I know last week I kept... Uh, uh, I, we, we had the um, summer con at uh, uh, Cedar Springs. And the one, only thing that I noticed out there that really kept uh, coming to mind was how much... I would love to have a pulpit like what's out there. It's the most wonderful pulpit in the world. It's this monstrous tree that they put down in front of everybody. And you come up and you sit in it. You can put like half of your notes from the last year on top of it. It's really a wonderful thing. But um, as far as my, my message today is concerned, I can assure you that it won't require the whole tree coverage to, to cover all of this. Because... I think the message in Malachi chapter 2 is very, very clear. It's a very uh, challenging message because it deals with some very sensitive topics. It does say something about marriage, says something about divorce, says something about honoring God. It says something about religious leadership and their attitude toward God. It says something about how they impact the lives of others and the fact that if they are in good relationship with God, then the people that they come in contact with are impacted by positive testimony and positive witness, and if they are not in good contact with God, uh, other things may occur. So today, I, I, I looked at this, and I kept thinking as I re was reading about my uncle from many, many years ago. Um, my uncle was born in the, uh, around 1920, and um, he uh, went to World War II, and um, I was told by everyone that prior to going into World War II, he was just a very jovial, positive individual that had no problems with anything. But having completed his time in, in the war, returned and got married pretty soon after he had returned to the United States, and said that his personality had changed. He was much more serious, um, tended to get angry a lot easier, get frustrated with life, um, just had a lot of changes in his character and personality. When I was growing up, of course, I didn't know him previously, so the only guy I knew was the one that was that way. But he had a wife that was so nice. His wife, was she was just wonderful. Uh, by the way, uh, Henry and Eileen, uh, that's Aunt Eileen to me. Um, so my aunt's name was Eileen, and I so... Um, she was so, uh, so positive in her, her attitude toward everyone. And they were married about 30 years, and they got a divorce. Now, I don't know why they got the divorce. Uh, it could be that she simply didn't have any more patience with him. Uh, because, as I say, he really didn't have a lot of patience to give to anyone. Then he began living with a, another lady a few years later. Lived with her for 30 years as well. And then he passed on. 
As I consider the issue of marriage, I have to ask myself some questions. Where was God in his understanding of marriage? Talking about my uncle. Will God bless that kind of a union? He lived with this second woman for 30 years. He'd already been divorced once, and I don't know what the reason was. You know, today we have to ask ourselves whether marriage is even a doomed experience because so many people see it as an extinct tradition or culture. We live in a world of dynamic change. Values and definitions around us change all the time. I suspect if we ask people in this room to give your understanding a definition of marriage, we would probably come up with some different uh, thoughts on it. Is marriage something that happens when two people have sex together? Is marriage something that occurs when a particular document is stamped and now they're suddenly married? Is marriage something that happens only the day that it, you're, two people are in a, a building and uh, maybe in, even in a church building? What is our view of uh, the, the, the situation we see today so often where the woman comes down the aisle wearing her nice white dress and you see that she's already pregnant at that point? Where is marriage in all of this? What is holy about marriage today? You see, we have to remember that marriage was not created by man. It was created by God. And it was an institution designed to be holy. It was a good thing. But it had ramifications if you lived outside of that definition the definition that God would give for how marriage was to occur. The Bible is not here to be just a rule book. It's not here just to tell us what we can and cannot do. And yet it is a guidebook for us. Certainly as we read the history of those who have followed God and those who rebelled against God, we need to be learners and allow that Scripture to teach us. So Malachi chapter 2 dares to put forth some of these, these ideas that, Challenges. The first problem that I find in chapter chapter 2 is in the very beginning of the chapter. And it's talking about the religious leadership of Israel and the lack of full commitment that they seem to have toward God. And the terminology in verses 1 and 2 it talks about, it says simply that they do not honor the name of God. They don't honor God with their lives. They may have the right words with their mouth, but they do not honor Him. And God has, uh, through, through Malachi, has, has uh, described something that's pretty tough. And that's where He says, uh, a curse will come upon you if you don't change. You know, it's a warning in verse 1. Verse 2 says, God's basic, any, you know, anytime you deal with your children or anyone else, and someone says, I'm giving you a warning, it means there's still a chance to change. There's an expectation that if you don't change, there will be results. And that's what basically we find here in this Scripture. It says the warning is you've got to treat God differently than you are. He is not just tip your hat and walk away, God. The religious leadership, though, now we're, not, we're talking about the ones that ought to know better 
had apparently been doing this for a while. And God basically has said to them, keep it up. Keep it up and you will be cursed. And any of these kind of curses are serious because it curses, it will be a curse to you and it will curse any of your work. It will curse as far out as it goes. The Scripture is presenting the idea that your testimony influences the lives of others. This year, I asked a friend of mine, uh, Dr. George Wilson, to come um, to be a part of the ordination of Pastor Sam. And I've known Dr. Wilson now for about 40 years. He was one of my professors back many years ago. Dr. Wilson is 88 years of age, but he has still not decided that it was time for him to retire. He has not retired in his honoring of God. His feeling is that his life is his honor to God. He hasn't slowed down. In May of this year, uh, uh, Samuel Tong, um, uh, a well-known theologian and uh, uh, actually a previous uh, seminary president that I've known for many years also, passed on. He was 90 Also a man who throughout his whole life continued to write and to pray and to serve and to preach and to be used in any way he possibly could. He did not find that honoring God was a temporary experience or only for show. Both of these men are models for me in saying our honoring of God is not based on time. It's not temporary. It's not for others to view It's not to impress everyone else. Our honoring of God is recognizing His position and our position as His created being. Impurity of heart was the problem that these religious leaders had. Oh, they showed that they were honoring God because they did what they had to do. Because if you'll remember in chapter 1, it talked about how The people of Israel would go and they would give their offerings, but they gave not their best, they gave their extras. When the animals were sick, those were the ones they gave as an offering. Our challenge is to give our best. Give your time, give your heart, give your service, and give it with joy. I always find it interesting to reflect back to my good old friend Jonah, because I, I, he's, he's a guy that served God, but served with a, a negative attitude the whole time because he didn't want to do it. He didn't have a burden. You know, that's not what God wants. Out of, he wants us to see that serving Him is not a punishment. Now, you don't have to serve by saying, okay, I'm going to quit my job and become a full-time minister. Now, some may want to, and that's fine. But you can be a minister through your life, through your work, through your witness, through your care, through your service. And we all are witnesses, be it positive or negative, but we are witnesses. The word honor seems to be at the heart of this scripture. So what does it mean to honor God when a prophet or a priest or a religious leader functions like a motivational speaker and that's all 
It's not really honoring of God. It may impress men, but the question is, how does God receive it? Our job is to present God and His truth without fear as we honor His Word and His truth. And as we heard from Wigwan earlier today, the purpose of us having Bible studies is not because we have nothing else to do at 1130 in the morning on Sunday. It's because we want to give everyone in here an opportunity to interact with God, interact with His truth. Chapter 2, verses 3 to 7, as we look through that particular part of the Scripture, talks about the covenant with Levi. And it talks about the punishment that uh, people will get as a result of ignoring the warning that God has given. God has said, change and everything will be better. But if you don't, and my goodness, what a description. You've got to remember that we're talking about religious leaders who were really pretty much living in the box so to speak. They had their understanding of what was clean and what was dirty, what was good and what was bad. And suddenly, we see a situation where it says, dung will be put on your faces and you'll be outside of the temple. Now, these religious leaders, for them, their responsibility, their identity as priests was to remain in the temple and the sacrifices, you know, what they would go and they would always, they would cleanse these animals before they were brought into the temple. They would cleanse them by going ahead and, and getting all of the excrement out of their, their innards in order that they would bring in only the cleanest of clean before they would ever have these used for any kind of food. So it was, it, they had a plan. They knew what they were... And suddenly, God is saying, that stuff you've been leaving outside is the stuff I'm going to put all over your face because you are filthy. Your playing games with me makes you filthy. Now, my challenge for you and me always is I'm after this. What can we learn for us? It's good that we're looking at 2,000 years ago or more, was more, when we see in the Scripture what God had to say in dealing with them. But the question is, how does He deal with us? We've got to learn for our own day. We often think that our lives of activity and being dis we, we tend to be kind of disconnected. We think what I do is my business, what you do is your business. But in fact, we are interconnected. We do relate to each other. According to Scripture, it tells us that we're to care for others and be aware that our testimony is not in isolation from the lives of others. In punishment for impurity, disrespect, and attitudinal sacrifices to God, the religious leaders would have their faces put in this, this terrible situation in order to share with all the people of Israel exactly how poor of a leader that person is. Well, we could say to ourselves, yeah, you know, Pastor, um, I think this is good to learn about what happened 2,000 years ago, but I want something that's going to function for me in 2015. I want to say to you that if we can't learn something from looking at the covenant of Levi, a covenant that was, according to Scripture, it says the covenant of Levi was one of life and peace. 
And he deserved this because of the, his heart's purity. God looked at this covenant, this relationship, saying, Levi, you can serve me as my minister, as a priest, because you are faithful. Because you are following me in all things. We need to realize if we break our relationship with God and we do not follow Him in all things, we really can't expect His protection, His concern, His care. Levi was of a priestly order, according to the Scriptures. And it reflects it by saying that he feared God. He had truth in his mouth. He walked with God in peace. And he kept knowledge. Those things are all mentioned as we look in chapter 2 of a description of what this covenant is. The challenge here was for the religious leaders to understand the privilege, what a privilege it was. And I think that's something we need to learn also is to realize we are privileged to be able to serve God. We are privileged that He has chosen us, that He's reached out to us. And in chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, it goes on, it says, But you have turned from the way, and by your teaching have caused many to stumble. Now, this is, this is a challenge to the religious leadership. It says, You have violated the covenant with Levi, says the Lord Almighty. So I have caused you to be despised and humiliated before all people, because you have not followed my ways and have shown uh, partiality in matters of the law. Our sin does impact the lives of others, causing others to stumble. When I was young, back in the old days, we had a lot of what they call revival services. They had different guys, and there were several that were really more out on the edge, so to speak. And I was always looking for something that was beyond just go to a room and have them just tell me, one, two, three, four. I was wanting a guy that was trying to get to a practical part of what life was all about. And I didn't know how that was done, didn't know how it was accomplished, but I was looking for it. And there was a, there was a preacher named Barry Wood. He was out of California. Barry Wood was, and there was a guy named Arthur Blessett. Arthur Blessett was a very interesting guy. He had a huge cross that he actually literally carried around the world to different countries. He would go and he would carry, he was carrying this huge cross over his shoulder. He had wheels on the back of it, but he would use that as his tool to be able to witness. And then there was another guy named Bob Harrington. Bob Harrington was an evangelist, and oh, he could preach so well. And I can still remember one of his favorite terms, that, I, that, that, that particular term I thought was kind of funny, but it was don't drink, smoke, or chew, or run around with those that do. I thought, wow, oh, that is really corny. But such it was. But the point was he could really use the Scripture well, he preached it. He challenged us. Oh, it was so good. And everything was wonderful. And I would go to these services. And he would come through and he would do a, a one-week conference and I would be involved because I'd been involved previously. And they had always asked me to come and to, to help them do the area of publicity or go and help them work in the area of, uh, of some other area of work. Um, one year he came. And just before he came, I learned that the services had been canceled. I was really surprised. Well, just after that, when I learned that he'd been having an affair with his secretary. Um, the only reason I mentioned this is that at that point, his Christian testimony, 
as a religious leader impacted my life. I heard what other people said. I heard what the pastor said. I heard what my mother said. And I also saw myself stop going to church. I reached a point, I said, you know, if Christians are like that, you know, I, I know you, Lord, and I know this is absolutely wrong, but if this is what I've got for a model, if these are the kind of guys that they can get up and they can talk and they can preach down the walls, you know, talking about Jesus and all this kind of stuff, using the Scripture, using the Bible, it sounds really, really good, but their life doesn't match. I, I just don't want hypocrisy as my model. So I stopped going to church for a period of time. The Scripture in chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 says that religious leaders or Christian leaders, for us, application, our testimony is important. Our consistency is important. It's not your alternative or your option to try to hide a sin and just hope it goes by. If we know we have... You know, this is the reason that churches sometimes have altar calls at the end of the service. And they'll say, please, come over. And I want you to just use this time and pray. To cleanse yourself. To come before God. Confess your sin. Don't come before the pastor. Don't come before the building. Don't come before a cross with a Jesus on it. Come before God and pray. And ask Him to change your life. See, asking for God's forgiveness for our sin doesn't mean, please wipe away what I did, but then I'm going to go ahead and do anything I want to want in the future. When we talk about coming and actually repenting, we're talking about coming and saying, God, we want you to change us. I don't want to continue to be this way. The testimony of that man impacted me very much but not, certainly not in the way that I would have liked to have seen that happen. As we go on in the Scripture, a second problem. The first problem was honor. Lack of honor. Lack of honesty. Lack of clarity. Lack of respect for the covenant with Levi. Lack of understanding that to be called out by God to serve is, is an amazing thing. As Christians, we are all called to serve Him. But as we look on, Problem number two that's mentioned in this scripture is found in verses 10 to 12. Verses 10 to 12 says, Do we not all have one Father? Did not one God create us? Why do we profane the covenant of our ancestors by being unfaithful to one another? Judah has been unfaithful. A detestable thing has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Judah has desecrated the sanctuary of the Lord by marrying women who worship a foreign god. As for the man who does this, whoever he may be, may the Lord remove him from the tents of Jacob, even though he brings an offering to the Lord Almighty. The point is, he does notice what we do. Bringing the offering to the Lord God Almighty sounds good. That looks like everything's fine. When we come to church on Sunday, everything may look fine. We may look like we're doing okay with our spiritual walk. But the real question is, much deeper than that. And I'm not saying you're bad, you're bad. I'm saying we are all sinners. 
And that we definitely includes here. The question I have to do is to reflect. When we take the Lord's Supper, it always says to go back and reflect in your relationship with God. Even as you eat and you drink and you remember what Jesus did for you, reflect on who you are and what He is and how He functions in your life. But the Scripture here talking specifically about marriage doesn't say don't marry foreign women. It says don't marry foreign women who lead you to follow foreign gods. It's saying that the issue is what is the spiritual relationship of that mate that you may have? What is the spiritual nature of the person you work with? You know, actually the Scripture gives us some challenges here because the Scripture goes actually much beyond just the marriage question. Part of the question that you find in here goes beyond it to say, our relationships with whomever need to be such that we do not allow ourselves to ever be placed in an environment where we have to compromise our faith. We're living in a world today where compromising our faith is something that's not going to be easy to avoid. Verse 10, one God created us all. Where do we come off thinking we can have religious leaders who aren't fully committed to whom they serve? Is God deceived? This is clear. God wants our full respect, service, and dedication. God seems to be saying to Judah, the chosen people of God, um, that we should treat God as if we, some, that somehow we've learned to treat God as if we thought uh, what we do is a private affair and God won't notice. The point there is when we live our lives with the assumption that we can hide things from God, we're already living with the wrong idea. One of my struggles, oh, so disappointing for me, um, and I've been dealing with this now for probably six months, is, is Solomon. And I've mentioned him before because Solomon is accredited for having written several books in the Bible, including Ecclesiastes, which I absolutely love as a book. But Solomon also is accredited with having 700 wives and 300 concubines. Um, my problem with Solomon is those 700 wives and those 300 concubines were not all followers of Yahweh. And that is the criticism and the question that God has. It is a religious question. It is not just because they're foreigners. The point was Solomon had reached a point that all he was noticing was the physical beauty of these different women and adding one more and adding one more and adding one more. Great disappointment in his understanding of what it was to have someone be married. Another story that I would like to mention, I think that helps to understand part of this, is back a number of years ago when I was teaching in Hong Kong, I had a student that came to my church to be uh, an intern. And this student... Um, was, I guess, probably 22, more or less, 22, 23. And in our church, we had a number of other people because we were, we were doing a lot of creative things to get our church started, um, uh, things that were pretty threatening to our mother church who was pretty conservative in how they wanted to function. And um, 
But, but he really enjoyed working with us. But within our church, we had this one particular girl, and I kept noticing they spent a lot of time talking. So finally, I asked him one day about it, and I said, you know, you guys talk a lot. I said, are you uh, kind of interested? He said, oh, I'm a Pastor Don. You know that, that of course, he didn't use Pastor Don. I'm always guy milk see with everybody else, but just, this is the first time I've ever been called Pastor Don in my life. And, um, but he, you know, so he, he, he you know, uh, he said, you know, I am... Um, uh, I don't know, you know, exactly where all that's going to go, but he said, you know, he said, you know, I need to focus on my, my, my work and I need to, and we kept, I said, but are you kind of interested in her? He said, well, yeah, but, but, you know, but he didn't, he was really reluctant to go into the detail on it. Well, I had already kind of noticed that she was spending more than enough time with him. Well, of course, as you know, uh, Peter Ted and his wife have been married now for nearly 20 years or around 20 years. And that was Peter that I'm talking about. And um, and I did their wedding, too, for that matter. But it was just funny to watch because we had to go through this part. And I had to keep reminding him. I said, Peter, it's a whole lot better for two Christians to meet and marry than to have the possibility of one of them meeting somebody else that's not a Christian and that additional pressure coming into the picture. I said, what's wrong with two Christians? Meet? You know, so it's just kind of an interesting experience to watch them go through this. Well... On the other hand, I had another friend that she came to the United States to function um, as an au pair and functioned for several years as doing this nanny role. And she was there um, and then returned to Macau. And she was about 27. Her mom and dad and everybody were all nervous about the fact that she was 27, didn't have a boyfriend. So within a short period of time, they managed to figure out that they could introduce a particular guy who was not a Christian and even though all the way up to that point, everyone expected that she was going to end up going into full-time ministry because of her dedication to the Lord, now it's been over 20 years since she's been in a church at all. The point is, marriage does include the joining together of people's religious identity. And so when God says to these priest, and he says, your own marriages are messed up. Your own lives are messed up. How do you expect to be a model for other people in Israel when you have this kind of a lifestyle? There's a problem. Chapter 2, verses 10 to 15, basically the principle is, do not form any relationship, temporary or permanent, with unbelievers that would lead to compromise of our Christian standards. The third problem that we go into says that you insult God and you weep and you ask why. In uh, chapter 2, verses 13 to 16, it says anything you do, anything or another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and wail because He no longer looks with favor on your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. You ask why. Uh, it is because the Lord is the witness between you and your wife of your youth. You have been unfaithful to her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. Has not the one God made you both? You belong to Him in body and spirit. And what does the one God seek? Godly offspring. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful to the wife of your youth. For the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce. 
for it covers one's garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore, take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. You know, I guess the thing that strikes me here as I'm trying, you know, is that this scripture and working with the book of Malachi started probably for me about two months ago, trying to reread this thing and get into this. The, the stories about Ashley Madison and this organization that is basically encouraging the destruction of families uh, has come out in the meantime. And this has become a bigger and bigger piece of news to say that there is actually an organization in our world that encourages infidelity. It encourages wives and husbands to have affairs. And it says that this is a good thing for people. And there are literally millions of people, apparently, who have signed up to get involved in this thing. You know, somehow, again, people get confused to think that you can hide your sin. And what's the, the big anger that has come out recently is that a name list and addresses and phone numbers and all this kind of information, personal data came out. The people didn't say, now I'm ashamed, I'm going to change. All they were angry about was, I got caught. You see, brothers and sisters, getting caught has never been an issue. God has already caught us. The Scripture said God is not mocked. He notices. He knows what we do. Yeah, you can hide it from your brothers, your friends, or whatever. But God knows. When weeping and excuses are presented in verses 13 and 14, we have to see that indeed and remind ourselves, God already knew it all. He's already seen it all. When I was in high school... I was in a class that uh, uh, was an English class, an advanced English class. Uh, very exciting course to be in. But there was a girl that, that was in there that just had extreme beauty. I don't know how she'd describe it. She's just extremely pretty. And as it happened, and truly this is not my planning, she happened to sit beside me. And so we got to know each other. We talked quite a bit. And uh, as time went on, Gradually, um, I learned that she was about a year and a half or two years older than me. So that's, you know, in those days, you know, when you're 17 years old, to meet someone that's 19, that's an older woman, you know. I mean, that's, you know, that, was, that, that was a big thing that I could even communicate with someone that age, you know. But as we continued to talk, gradually, it came out that she actually had been let, been put back one year. And the reason was the year before she had had a baby. And um, I can remember us getting into that conversation, and, and she's the only person I knew, at, at, even close to my age, that had had a baby. And I thought, wow, you, you're, yeah, okay, you're out there on the edge. Um, but I can still remember a certain point where we got into a Christian discussion. And I was talking with her about the Lord and talking to her about how I really felt like, you know, God has uh, love and care for me. And she said, you know, but I just don't understand. I said, what do you not understand? She said, just why me? She said, I, I just don't understand why all of this happened to me. And I can remember, oh, and I, boy, I'm so thankful I bit my tongue. I don't always bite my tongue. I'm not very good at it. I try. 
some. And, um, but she said, uh, why me? And I said, I'm not going to say this, but what I want to say is, if you don't know, you weren't in the same biology class I was in. If you don't know why you had a baby, somehow you weren't listening. You know, the problem that I see in the Scripture as we look through this in verses 14 to 16 and all of this as it deals with this and it challenges about marriage and it challenges about divorce, all of this is saying the same thing. It's screaming loudly to us to say, you do know. You do know why. To her, it would say, you do know why. The issue was, could you control your own urges? Did you want to be responsible for your own decisions? You know, you can blame other people for your decisions if you want to. You can blame television, movies, friends, uh, cultural uh, norms or whatever. But bottom line is, no one makes a decision but you. The Scripture here challenges us with this. And it says that these men were looking for younger wives. Looking for the grass is greener on the other side of the fence mentality. I've met many people in Asia, many men in Asia with second wives and third wives. And of course, we use the word wife and use it very loosely. The point about marriage is that it was created by God. It, God did not create Frank and Harry did not create Sally and Linda. He created man and woman in order to have children that families might grow up and be a witness to our world. The fourth thing as we see in here as it's talking about some extra comments, it's mainly dealing with the comments related to divorce and the wearying of God. God finds it cumbersome and wearying to hear us say, why? I don't get it, God. Why did I get pregnant? When in truth, the answer is, you know why. You never were dependent on God. You never fully followed Him with all that you were. And the Scripture goes ahead and it says that divorce is not God's ideal. He does not want divorce. In verses 16 to 17, it says, The man who hates and divorces his wife says to the Lord, the God of Israel, does violence to the one he should protect, his wife, says the Lord. Uh, uh, see, does violence to the one he should protect. So he says, uh, so be on, to, uh, be on your guard and do not be unfaithful. You have wearied the Lord with your words. How have we wearied him, you ask? By saying all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord and he is pleased with them. Or, where is the God of justice? The question is, they were, they were continuing to use excuses with God. In fact, they knew divorce was never God's ideal. They understood what the meaning of marriage was. Marriage is a challenge. But I know recently, and, and going into the details on this, the Scripture definitely tells us that divorce is not uh, perfect, but it's something that only in certain circumstances... And those circumstances are outlined in Scripture. Is it ever even allowed? But one of the things that's been fascinating to me is this last week when uh, the Pope came down with his new annulment uh, decree. 
related to uh, marriages. Uh, a Catholic, you need to remember this, a Catholic needs a church annulment to remarry in the church. And a divorced Catholic who remarries in the civil court without that is considered an adulterer living in sin. And then, as a result of being an adulterer, they're forbidden from being able to take communion. And we must remember that communion for a Catholic is part of salvation. For them, communion is not the Lord's Supper. For us, the Lord's Supper is a remembrance of our relationship with God. For a Catholic, that's part of salvation. You have to do that. And so suddenly you have deprived yourself of that. So they treat marriage in a very, very serious way, but it's only if they're living with the issue of divorce, they're trying to find a way to get out. And this annulment rule will certainly open up some very interesting days. But I think the thing that we need to realize is that God has asked us to honor Him faithfully. He's asked us to have a very rightful understanding that, uh, of marriage and divorce and that we're, we're to truly serve Him in all that we do. And we're not to treat Him in a way that would ever be disrespectful, such as wearying Him with false weeping. When we weep, it should be because we truly repent. One of the problems for the priests in the, in the Old Testament here, that was part of their issue. They wept, they cried, but the depth of uh, true commitment was not found within. And repentance was not part of the goal. So today I'd like to ask us to, even as we have a closing prayer, just reflect on who we are in our walk with Him. The Scripture teaches us some things here, but I think it also challenges us. Let's pray. Father God, we come before You today asking that we might learn how to weep, that we might learn how to cry, that we might learn how to humble ourselves and come before You and be willing to change. Father, we ask that You would make us pure vessels, that our hearts might be hungry for reaching out in Your name to the world in which we live. Father, give us joy that we might present a model for the lost world around us that, that would make them want to know more about You. Father, we don't want to present just a dead religion in our lives, but we want to present a living Christ in Jesus' name.